0: A question I want to uh, contemplate with you this morning is, does sin matter? When we disobey God, does that really matter in the end? Uh, I heard a story once about a minister here in Sydney, and I I think this has actually been repeated many times, uh, very sadly, Um, and I don't know the the ins and outs of the particular example, uh, but... The story goes that this minister left his wife and his kids, and he moved in with another woman. And he was confronted about it, and and asked, "What are you doing? How can you do this as someone who professes to be a Christian?" And he said, "I'm a Christian. I'm saved by faith. What I do doesn't matter." a father abandoning his wife and kids, doesn't matter? He says we're saved by trusting Jesus. That's true. Do our sins matter, though? That's the question I want to contemplate this morning. Now, you might be wondering why... This guest preacher has walked in and opened up Ezekiel chapter 43. I get one go at saying something worthwhile here in this to this congregation, and I chose this passage. Um, Does that strike you as a little bit strange? Uh, I hope it does. Uh, I'm not quite sure that I'm sane in having chosen it, but let me give you a couple of reasons why I want to share this passage with you this morning. Now, the first is I think this passage has some really helpful things to say to us here today. And the second thing I want to say is, I think that's true of the whole Bible. See, most of the time when you get the guest preacher, they'll talk to you about uh, a miracle or a parable from the Gospels, or they might have one of the really um, clear and well-known passages out of one of Paul's letters, and that's good. And we do need to keep going back to those things again and again, but we also know that The whole Bible is useful for teaching, training, correcting and rebuking in righteousness. The whole Bible. And part of what I want to do this morning is to help you really understand that that's true by showing you that this part of the Bible here is useful for us and our training in righteousness. The big difference between this passage and some of the more well-known parts of the Bible is not that this one's not useful. It's not that what it says is not clear. It's just that it's a little bit harder to unpack it. There's a bit more going on. We need to do a little bit more work. And so, as I work from this passage this morning, uh, I have to, I've had to do a bit of extra work to understand it, but I'm also going to ask you to do a little bit of extra work to stay with me as we look at what this passage has to say to us to help our lives in the coming week, and I hope well beyond that. I also hope that it will encourage you to take the whole Bible seriously, even the difficult bits, to go away and maybe read Ezekiel for yourself. So, Ezekiel chapter 43, the first thing we need to do to understand this part of the Bible is we need to understand the context of what's going on here, okay? Context is always the the key to understanding a passage in the Bible. And so the historical context, I'm going to try to give you the big picture of where we are in uh, God's plan for salvation. I, let's see if I can do it in about 30 seconds. God saved Israel out of Egypt. They promised to obey him. Then they didn't. God sent prophets telling, warning them that he was going to judge them if they didn't obey him. They still didn't obey him. And so after... After a few hundred years of this, uh, in the year 597 BC, the Babylonian armies came from uh, what is modern-day Iraq uh, across the Euphrates Valley and down into Israel and they conquered Jerusalem. And they took away the leaders of the city, all the leading citizens, amongst them the priest Ezekiel because that wasn't the end of what was going on in Jerusalem, you'd think after having been conquered by the Babylonians, they might get the hint, but no, they rebelled again. And they still didn't listen to God, and they didn't listen to the Babylonians either, for that matter. And so the Babylonians came back ten years later, and they completely flattened the city of Jerusalem. And they destroyed everything, including the temple, the one place where Israel were able to worship God where they would go to offer sacrifice for sin, where they would go to pray, it was gone. Their hope, their salvation, the thing that made them God's people, it was gone. And Ezekiel is far away in exile, in Babylon, hundreds of kilometres away, And it's his job to explain to the people what's going on. What has happened here and what is God going to do now? And so we pick up the story in Ezekiel chapter 43. uh, Ezekiel's standing at the temple looking east. Except we've got a problem here because we know there is no temple. It's just been flattened. And so what we've got in Ezekiel chapter forty up to the point where we pick it up, Ezekiel is having this vision of a temple. Uh, This man who seems to be some sort of angel has been giving Ezekiel a tour of this new temple. Let me give you a sample of it. It's one of the great passages of the Bible. It's really exciting stuff. Uh, The outer wall of the side rooms was five cubits thick. The open area between the side rooms of the temple and the priest's rooms was 20 cubits wide all around the temple. There were entrances to the side rooms from the open area, one on the north and another on the south, and the base adjoining the open area was five cubits wide all around. (laughs) Thrilling stuff, isn't it? That was three verses. If you read the book of Ezekiel, we've just had three chapters of that sort of description. And we might go, why? I mean, what's going on? What's the the point? Remember, Israel's only method of worshipping God has been taken away. And Ezekiel here has this vision of this new temple that far surpasses anything that God has ever done before. And he wants to appreciate the whole detail of it. He's appreciating the magnificence of what God is doing here in this vision. And to get our heads around it, we need to actually pay attention to some of the numbers, and we don't tend to measure things in cubits, and I'm not going to go into the details, but when Israel first came out of Egypt, they had a tent. That was a pretty big tent. It might have been the size of this building. But then they kind of got rid of that and they built a temple building. That was, that's what was just destroyed. It was this big building. It was kind of about the third of the size of a football field. This temple that Ezekiel's just had a vision of, it's about six football fields in size. That's one building. It's just beyond the scale of imagination. God is showing Ezekiel he is going to provide a new place of worship that is just beyond his imagination and that's where Ezekiel is standing as we pick up this passage God is going to do something beyond what we can imagine and Ezekiel stands at the east gate of the temple looking out toward the mountain that's just to the east of Jerusalem the Mount of Olives so now we understand the historical context we understand where we're up to in the context of the book of Ezekiel Finally, we come to the passage itself. Verse 1. Then the man, that's the angel who's been giving him the tour of this new temple, brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. This vision I saw was like the vision I'd seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River. That is, we've come to the passage and Ezekiel says, you know what, this is just like those two other times, so we need more context. This is why I said at the beginning, it's harder to understand some parts of the Old Testament. It's not that we can't do it, it's not that you need some sort of special magical skill, it's just there's more work in terms of understanding the context of what's going on. And so we're going to have a little bit, more of a look at this point as I was writing this sermon I was worried I'd get to this point it might feel a little bit like one of those car trips you take with the kids where you're driving along and they say when are we going to get there and you say well it's a five-hour drive and we've been going for four minutes (laughs) I wish that was made up that was two weeks ago (laughs) but please stay with me we just need that little bit more context. Ezekiel's just said, this is just like these two other visions I've had in the past. The first one, I wish we had time to read it all, but you're going to have to take my summary. But chapters one and two of Ezekiel, at the very beginning, Ezekiel has a vision and it's weird. You think this chapter was weird. Go read Ezekiel chapter one. There are four creatures who each have four faces and wings and then there are some wheels that have wheels within wheels and there's eyes all over the wheels. And it's this weird image, but it's, this, it's ultimately a chariot as you've got these four creatures pulling this wheeled vehicle and on top of it there's kind of this dome which is actually the heavens themselves and enthroned on top of the whole thing is the Lord God himself. It's this vision of God on his chariot as it's drawn by these amazing creatures. That's who we're dealing with. When Ezekiel says it's like that vision, we're talking about the Lord who is enthroned on heaven above. But then there's the second vision. Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11. Uh, There's a lot that happens there. I wish I had time to go over all of it, but let me give you a really quick summary. That is... God comes out of the temple, and Ezekiel watches as God sends angels through the city to slaughter the people for their sin, as God's people die for their sin that they have committed. and I'll pick it up, chapter 10, verse 18. The glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim, that is, God climbed into his chariot. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground and as they went, the wheels went with them. The chariot started moving. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. God has left the holy place in the middle of the temple and he's gone to the gate. And as we pick it up again, further on in chapter 11 of Ezekiel, verse 23, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. God has left the temple. He's left the city. The Lord who was there to protect his people is gone and he has left them to face the consequences for their sin. They're the two previous visions. God has left his people. Who we're dealing with is the Lord of heaven and earth. And what he's done is he's left his people to their unrepentant sin. Two visions. And now we come to Ezekiel chapter 43, and it's the third vision in this series. Ezekiel says it was just like those two. And Ezekiel's standing here at the east gate. This is where God left the temple. And Ezekiel's now standing at the east gate, but it's not the same temple, remember? That one was destroyed. Here we have this new amazing temple and Ezekiel is looking out east toward the mountain where God had gone and rested. And now the Lord God is returning. He's coming back. The chariot is rushing toward him. And can you imagine Ezekiel's excitement as God is coming back to dwell with his people in the midst of this new temple? The chariot's drawing closer. You can hear the sound, the rumbling, like roaring of rushing waters. And he's almost at the gate where Ezekiel's standing. And Ezekiel's thinking, the Lord of heaven and earth is about to come right past where I'm standing. And the end of verse 3, I fell face down. But then God picks him up. The the glory of... Sorry, where am I? The vision I... No, I am at verse 4. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God is back in the midst of this new temple. God is doing something amazing. And He is here to dwell with his people forever and ever. And at this great climactic moment, one of the great moments of the Old Testament, God speaks. And when God speaks, what is the one thing he wants his people to know as he comes to dwell with them? At this great moment of victory. Verse 7, he said, Son of man, This is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold, Their doorposts sneaked beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. They defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. As God comes back to dwell with his people, he wants them to remember their sin. At this moment of triumph, we get sternness from God. He'd been dwelling with his people before and they, in the middle of their temple, had set up idols. They would go in to make a sacrifice to the Lord and then they would literally just pop around the corner to worship an idol that they had built just outside the door of the most holy place. They had idols on the steps on the way in. They were worshipping idols in God's very presence as if he would not see Who could be so stupid as to think that God would not see their idolatry? Well, it's us, isn't it? That's when we sin and we think that God won't see. We think we can get away with it. As a visiting preacher, I don't know what the particular struggles are for people here because I just haven't met you There's all sorts of things that I think people in our society struggle with and things that we do that we think God is not going to see. Pornography. We know we shouldn't do it, but some do. might be alcohol, thinking God won't care, God won't notice if I just get drunk. I don't know what your issues are but you know what you struggle with, don't you? You know the sin in your own heart better than I ever will. But more than that, God knows. You can't hide it from God any more than Israel could hide the idols in the temple just because they were on the other side of a wall. God saw what Israel was doing and he withdrew his presence from them. God has not changed his mind about sin. He hasn't suddenly declared that it doesn't matter anymore. You can't just say, I'm saved by faith, and then go and do whatever you like. Read verse 9 again. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings, and I'll live among them forever. That is, repent of sin. Turn away from it. Stop it. When Jesus came, he proclaimed the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance is just that turning away from a way of life that's devoted to something that's not God and devoting yourself to God instead It doesn't mean that you have to tick the box and go, well, here's the big list of things I've done wrong and I make sure I've apologised to God for each one. of them. And if you miss one, then you're in trouble. It's not like that. It's about the whole of life where you turn away from the way of life that's devoted to wrong and you instead devote yourself to the Lord. Think back to my example at the beginning. A minister leaving his wife and kids for another woman. Think about the pain and destruction that that man caused for his kids, for his wife, and for his church. Did that matter? You bet it did. And he turns around and says, I'm saved by faith, it doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel We're not saved by what we do, but we're only half right if we think that our actions can't have an impact on our salvation. Our our actions show us where our trust is, and that man's actions showed that he was not trusting in the word of the Lord. He just wanted to do his own thing. He was living his life for himself and not for God. He did not have a repentant heart. He did not confess his sin. And if that's where the story ended, I don't know, then he did not trust God. I don't think he will be saved. God calls us to repent of our sin, not to claim it doesn't matter. now we're getting closer to the end i'm up to point three on my outline strange solution so i warned you there'd be a lot here because there's lots of context we need to cover before we get to the passage but i hope you're still with me and i hope this is going to be worth it see the problem for israel was their unrepentant sin our problem is our sin that we need to repent of and yet God has somehow come back to Israel. Israel's problem was their sin, and somehow God has just decided to come back into the temple. It's not that sin stopped mattering. He's just said that it still matters. So how has he managed to come back? What's he doing? Look again at God's explanation to Ezekiel. God has come back from that mountain that is east of Jerusalem. He has been carried into Jerusalem, the holy city, by created beings. He has been enthroned in the holy place of sacrifice. And despite the magnificence of Ezekiel's vision, that's just beyond our comprehension at times, Ezekiel's only seeing a shadow here. We know the reality. See, we have had revealed to us something that Ezekiel longed to know. We know what it looked like when the Lord was carried from the Mount of Olives that is in the east of Jerusalem into the city. We know what it looked like when they took our Lord Jesus to the place of sacrifice and enthroned him upon the cross. That's what it looked like when the Lord returned to his people. We know what the glory of the Lord looks like better than Ezekiel did because God has now revealed it to us. We know what it cost for God to return to his people. It cost the life of God the Son. The problem of sin, our sin, demanded the death of the Messiah and our Lord paid that price. He did it willingly. Jesus was willing to go to that place and die so that we could be forgiven and God could dwell in us as the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside each one of us so that we live in God's presence. Verse 10, God tells Ezekiel he wants the people to look so that they know their problem. Verse 10, Son of Man, describe the temple to the people of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their sins. We ought to look and be ashamed. We should look at the cross and be ashamed that it was our sin that meant that Jesus had to die before we could be saved. That's how serious our sin is. It needed Jesus' death. And so we should look at the cross and be ashamed. But then we get verse 11, which says, and if they are ashamed of all they've done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits, its entrances, its whole design and its regulations and laws. That is, look at the temple and be ashamed. And if you're ashamed, then... Here's the solution, look at the temple. How does that work? How can looking at one thing give us the shame and looking at the same thing give us the solution? Well, we see it in the cross of Christ, don't we? We look at the cross of Jesus and we see how horrid our sin is that it required that solution. And then we look at the cross and we see what God has done to solve the problem. As the Lord was carried by people he had made from the Mount of Olives in the east into the place of sacrifice, where he was enthroned upon the cross so that we can be forgiven and live forever let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus you have come to dwell with your people and that you have dealt with our sin. Father, we pray that you may give us hearts of repentance, that we may turn away from our sin, turn to Jesus instead. And trust in him as our Lord and our saviour so that we might have salvation by faith. And Father, we pray that day by day we might be repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus anew each day. Amen.